Wow, how wonderful, how, how true that song is. And uh, we can rejoice over that today. Thank you, Laura, for selecting the song and singing it so beautifully, and Kaylee for their sign language. Indeed, uh, there's many things there for us to rejoice in today. And it is communion day. And of course, you know, we don't have the communion table. We're, we're not, you know, we're still getting adjusted to this, it seemed like after a couple of years. Um, so if you did not receive one of the uh, wafer and juice packets when you came in, We've got uh, one or two guys who are going to help with that. So if you didn't receive one, would you just raise your hand and, and let them uh, bring that to you now is a good time to do it? The first one's always free. <laughs> After that, they're a dollar each, though, right? So uh, we got some folks to do that. Well, this morning we want to turn our attention, as we already have in the songs, to, to the issues that hopefully will help prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the communion this morning. Communion's probably a common experience for many here. I'd be surprised if anyone here has never received a communion or is not familiar with what it is, at least in its form. It looks and, and functions a little differently because of the transition we've all had to adjust to with COVID, but we've tried our best to, again, make it uh, nonetheless meaningful and important in our time together to worship. And today I want to take the opportunity of the minutes before us to, to prepare our hearts and our thoughts about what the Scripture says, about some realities of the communion that help us to understand it hopefully at a greater depth, and uh, even to look at some things to help us uh, be reminded of how worldwide uh, this is. I want to do that today. You know, the, the term we use for this is actually one of many terms. Thank you, man. Everybody have a, have a juice and wafer packet? Okay. Um, we, we use the term a lot, communion, signifying a common experience. We come together and share in this communion, not only with one another, but also in the presence of Christ. Our communion with him is nonetheless a priority. For he has said, where two or three are gathered together, I think we meet that qualification this morning. There am I in the midst. And so today we acknowledge the, the presence of the Lord. So communion is a good term used there in 1 Corinthians. The Lord's table is used in the same passage. We hear that reference some, and certainly that brings good thoughts to us also, referencing what we know of the Scriptures. We hear the, we call it the breaking of bread. A little debate about is that actually the communion service or another meal. We'll put it in there just for the conversation now. Eucharist is a, a bigger term. Not used so much by Baptists, for sure. It's a term that comes out of the European church of many centuries ago. But it in itself just is a word of thanksgiving. That's all it means. That when we, you might hear someone say, we're going to celebrate the Eucharist. We're going to celebrate the thanksgiving of God's Son giving his body and his blood for our salvation. That's the intent. But again, it's a word that because it has some baggage to it, some doctrinal baggage to it, I think rightfully so, Baptists have strayed away from that terminology with much uh, commonality. The Lord's Supper is probably a familiar term to many. Always been interesting to me that term. Uh, Baptists have certainly uh, found affiliation with that term. It's really, it's interesting though because it's, it's not a meal, it's not a supper. Um, but it still gives it the framework of what we're thinking about today. And whatever you want to term it, or whether you reference it through more formal or less formal sources, 
The communion is none of the parts something obviously scriptural. It's referenced in all. It's referenced five times in the New Testament, it's in all four Gospels, and in First Corinthians. We'll take a moment to glimpse at a couple of those this morning before we're finished. But I thought it would be interesting as I was preparing this week and anticipating um, coming before you with this on our minds and our hearts to look at some of the ways in which the Lord's Supper has been portrayed through paintings. Now, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of paintings through history around the world that have intended to display someone's idea of the Lord's Supper. So I thought I'd start. You might be able to read, uh, I tried to put on each of these a date or at least maybe the author's name if it was known. This is one of the oldest ones um, in the 11th century. Uh, this image here of Christ, it has a certain two-dimensionality to it. There's not a lot of depth of that. You know, it looks like something that you might get a middle school student to, to create. But at least they were starting to put in the imagery of what this would have looked like. Uh, here's another one from 1306, an Italian artist. You notice the halos? You'll see that in a, lot, a lot in these. You notice the halos around their head. Halos are always a painter's way of identifying someone who's supposed to be holy or sacred. That's the only purpose for that. Here's one from Italy also, 1441. Notice uh, the table is a more westernized table. It's about, you know, 29 inches tall as our tables are today. And it, and it just sort of has that western look to it. You see how culture sort of puts its own image to some of these. Here's one from a Dutch artist that looks like it's in somebody's house. I mean, it looks like a, 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 a 15th century house. So they certainly adapted the idea to their culture, for sure. Here's a, a panel from a church in Strasbourg, France. It's actually one of ten panels that decorate the interior of the, of the church. Uh, the authors of all these panels are unknown. It may be the same one. But uh, they intend to portray the life of Christ. The church has always found a need and a useful need, I think, to try to visualize. You know, we are visual learners in many ways. One reason I like using PowerPoint, it gives me the opportunity to draw upon that, that visual learner aspect of our imagery. Of course, the most famous of all the Lord's Supper representations is from the Italian Leonardo da Vinci. We're probably most familiar with this one. Um, it, too, has lots of flaws with it. Um, uh, this is the one that's it's actually painted. Um, there you can see the little part, the center bottom part of that is actually a doorway. Get a sense of just how big this painting is. A French representation in the 1600s. You sort of get the impression of a dark room, certainly, by looking at that. Here's a, another French artist. This one has some interesting use of shadows and lights also. They're all just portrayed in different ways. Here, of course, you see the, the glow of the light sort of centers our attention to Christ there in the middle. But again, with the Western table, um, when it, that was not had been the tradition of the time. Most of those to us are fairly, okay, I, I can see that. I can see their intent, their interest, and they certainly have their place in art history. But you know, as you get into the the last century, you get into the 20th century and 21st century, this mindset of art took on a whole new, mind, uh, new perspectives that sort of transitioned what looks real into something that often became surrealistic, sort of partially real. It's there, but it's not there kind of thing. So take a look at this one. In 2013, evidently this particular Brazilian artist wasn't that good at drawing faces. 
so she just left them off. This one's interesting, too. If you notice everything about this one, the Lord's Supper, every line is straight. There are no curves in this one. This one, just a couple of years ago. This one, though, is one that if you look at too long, you'll just walk away with a headache. There's just, uh, there's lots of things interesting about that for sure. Uh, but I thought that was an interesting way to see how culture has transitioned this. And, and again, there are dozens and dozens, dozens of others that uh, have taken the Lord's Supper and tried to portray it in an artist's perspective, whether it's more realistic or more cubist or surrealistic. Uh, certainly uh, lends our brain to some interesting directions with that. But of course, our, our goal is not to just look at images of the Lord's Supper and try to draw our understanding of it from those as well as intended as they may have been and as well done as they may have been. Our intention is today to look at the reality of the Lord's Supper. So I want to take us to Matthew 26. I'll have the verses up here if you want to look in it in your scriptures. We're going to walk into that room can you imagine for a moment what that evening would have been like? So much leads up to the upper room. Christ entering Jerusalem just a few days earlier, where he was exalted with hosannas and received with praise by the people of Jerusalem. So much has happened. And now it comes time for the Passover meal. Passover, the supreme uh, celebration of Hebrew and Jewish heritage going back, of course, to the book of Exodus. Passover is the identity that draws the Jewish individual to their foundings, to their origin, to the time when God really did something unique and special for them in bringing them out of Egypt, a place where they had only known bondage and slavery over the generations, to be led by this man Moses to the mountain where there they would receive the law. Not just the Ten Commandments, there was so much more to the law. They received the law from God himself, that through Moses they might, as a people, understand what it was to worship the Lord, to serve the Lord. That they might begin to see themselves in the shadow of God, Jehovah. And not just be like every other nation on earth. Chasing after all these other gods. Chasing after the the spirits of nature, the forces of the human soul. No, they were to set their passions to serve the Lord. Love the Lord your God was the call. Hear, O Israel, there is but one Lord, Deuteronomy 6 reminds us. That is who they were to set their affections on. What was God doing in that law giving? What would be the old covenant? as we will see a reference to it. It was a covenant between God himself and the people of Israel that they might receive his blessings as they followed his path, as they sought to commit themselves to him. And in that old covenant, there were things to do. But all these things pointed to a coming Messiah. We sang it earlier. Jesus Messiah, name above all names. Those Hebrews would say, I would come to say Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah found in Jesus. For he was that one to come, and he was that one to bring the fulfillment of all that God had intended, not only for Israel, 
but indeed for all mankind. And so that old covenant existed generation after generation, century after century. Israel at times went through the mountaintop and through the valleys with it. They followed it with their whole heart, but so many times they failed. And God was constantly having to send prophets to call them back. Come worship the Lord. Remember your covenant with him? He seeks to love you and bless you and, and show you all that you can find in him is the fulfillment of what you need. And yet they wandered away so frequently. Eventually, of course, we turn our Bibles from the Old Testament to the New Testament. A new time. And we're quickly introduced to God setting the stage for the coming of his son, the Messiah. That Jesus might be the fulfillment of all that the prophets had said. That Jesus might demonstrate to us the necessity through human words, through a human body, through human emotions, that Jesus might demonstrate to all humanity for all time the reality of God in the flesh. Those three years of ministry passed, no doubt, quickly. I mean, so many things happened. But we come to this time now, and Jesus knows it's, it's the end. He is going to go to Jerusalem, as he has already prophesied. I will go to Jerusalem. And there he will be arrested and taken. He will die. And he tries to prepare his disciples for this. He, he instills in them a sensitivity to the seriousness of the moment. Passover is a celebration. But Jesus would take this Passover meal that all of them had participated in all throughout their life as Jews. And he would transition it into a new meaning by instituting what we call the communion. Taking elements that were already there. You see, the Passover meal has bread. It has the drink. It had other things, too. But those are two key parts of it. The Passover meal is a, not just an eating, it's a, it's a process. And it's a reflection upon what God had done for their forefathers to bring them to this place. Christ will take those familiar elements and he will transition them into a meaning for his disciples and for his coming church that would bear great importance and great value. Let's think about the Lord's Supper as we prepare to read this, about what it's not. Because I want us to have clarity on the Lord's Supper and what it is intended to be so that we're not confused or deluded in our understanding of it. The Lord's Supper is not a sacrament. A sacrament, as taught by some, means that upon receiving this, you receive a special unction of blessing from God. That's not part of the communion. We do not receive a special blessing, a sacrament in the sense of that def definition. So it's a, it's a wrong name to call it a sacrament. It's a wrong biblical perspective to call it a sacrament. The Lord never used those words, and the scriptures that will follow never use that idea. 
It's not a physical transformation. Again, through some very old history in the church growing out of Europe, there became this idea that the elements of the communion, the wafer and the drink, somehow were physically transformed into the very body and the blood of Christ. That too is not found in Scripture. It became nothing but a religious tradition and an error in teaching what the Bible shows us about this event. It's not a physical transformation. It's not a physical presence. Some even took this idea and brought it to Christ is with us physically. That also is an erroneous perspective. It's not a means to maintaining your salvation. As the scripture teaches, it's a moment of reflection and remembrance, but it has nothing to do with you either being saved or maintaining your salvation. It's also not a religious ritual. Something we go through just out of routine and habit, and okay, we got that done, check that off till the next time. Sad to say, that's where the errors have all originated from, those very thoughts. The communion is not that. Never has been. The Bible doesn't display it. I mean, that's just human religious thought being infused into the Scripture where it's not intended to be. So what is the Lord's Supper? It is a remembrance of Christ. Remember those words. This do in remembrance of me. We need to remember who Christ is as the Son of God come in the flesh. We need to remember who Christ is as the one who came by his own words recorded for us in the Gospel of John to, to demonstrate truth. We need to remember he's the one who lived the perfect life and died the sacrifice for the sin that we could not die for ourselves. We need to remember Christ, not just at this moment at the communion table of the Passover, but we need to remember who he is and his fullness of his personage, the eternal Son of God, the one proclaimed by the angels unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. We remember Christ for all he is. So much depth to that. Our time will certainly not allow us to go down that. It's also a memorial of a new covenant. Christ himself will say, this is the blood of the New Testament, as it's translated in our Bibles often, by our new covenant. You see, the old covenant had served its purpose. It intended to point people to a future where a Messiah would come. And the fulfillment of God's prophecies would be known and understood in human form. Now we look back. As they looked forward in faith, we look back in faith. It's a reminder that Jesus established a new reality for all of humanity, not just for one nation or for one group of people, but for all humanity. So this gospel says, what? Go ye into all the world. Why? Because all have sinned. All have come short. There is none righteous. No, not one. All are guilty. We are, as so well expressed in the song, wretches. Such a worm as I, John Newton would say in Amazing Grace. We have no capacity to stand before God. The prophet Isaiah would say our, our righteousness is as filthy rags. I often compare that to the idea of a soiled diaper. Don't soiled baby diapers get you all excited? 
We want to get rid of them as quick as we can. That's what we're bringing to God. You want to bring your righteousness to God? Go ahead. But you're bringing him a dirty diaper and saying, here, God, will this make you happy? No, we turn away our own righteousness. And we dare not go before God with our own righteousness. We can only come in that name above all names, Jesus Christ. It is only in him that we can find not only life fulfilled, but life eternal. It is a memorial to that new covenant. It's a reminder of that. It's a recognition of our own spiritual life. The communion is intended to be for those who have placed their faith in Christ. Now, churches have debated and still debate about how to exercise the communion. The terminology used in that is a closed communion or an open communion. A closed communion, a church might say, we only allow communion to be received by the members of our church in proper standing, and everyone else, thank you for being here, but you're excused. That's a closed communion, typically. We exercise an open communion, meaning it's open to those who have professed faith in Christ and personally received him as Lord and Savior. We do not tie our church membership to the exercise of communion. So today, if you're here as a guest or a visitor or a non-member, and you put your faith and trust in Christ, we invite you to join with us in this time. It's a recognition of the spiritual life that we share in Christ. It's a renewal. A renewal. We've all heard of couples who did a renewal of their wedding vows. Doesn't mean they didn't love each other the years before, or they weren't committed to each other. It's an outward representation that they renew that commitment. And similarly with the Lord's Supper, we do that. We renew it. It's a renewal to Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's a renewal to his church. Because we're all body, we're all part of the body of the church. We have our place of service and our place of engagement. It's renewal to that. It's renewal to one another. It's as if we locked arms and said, we stand here for Christ, for righteousness, for the reality of God who oversees and is providentially guiding and directing us as his body of believers. We commit to one another for those purposes and those causes. And it's ultimately also a commitment to the gospel. I don't think it will shock anyone here that the world still needs to hear the good news. That Jesus Christ came into the world he lived a perfect life. He died a death on our behalf to pay the sacrifice that only could suffice for the righteous and holiness that otherwise sin separated us from. And that he arose again the third day and today has ascended into the place of right standing as part of the Trinity. The gospel message still needs to be heard. It's proclaimed in many avenues through many perspectives, but it's always the essential of the gospel that is there. So now with those thoughts in mind, let's go to Matthew 26. And let's remember we're stepping into an existing event. Christ and the disciples have gathered in that upper room. Why an upper room? Because Passover was celebrated by all families this evening. 
And no doubt there was a family in the lower room of the house celebrating a Passover. And there was a family in the house next door and across the street and all around Jerusalem. And Christ takes his disciples to an upper room that they might share the Passover. And as they were eating, we read that very quickly, but the process of the Passover takes hours. There's places where you stop and you read a portion of Scripture. There's four different times during the evening where you stop and drink from the cup. There's times when the passages of Exodus are read. There's questions that the children ask and the parents respond to. It's, it's quite a process. And as this was happening, and evidently they were well into the meal because the cup that is presented here is the third of the four cups of the Passover. As they were eating, as they were enjoying going through this process, Jesus took bread, as it's translated for us, and blessed it and broke it, broke it, not tore it, but broke it, and gave it to his disciples. I wonder what insights they had at this moment. Christ himself, the very center of this event, no doubt, but he stops. I wonder what he said to them in detail. We don't have that recorded for us here to, to say, uh, look, men, tear. We know. He, he broke it, he blessed it, and he gave it to them. And he said something that must have sounded unusual to their ears. Take, eat, okay? But this is my body. How interesting that must have sounded to them. Uh, this piece of bread? This unleavened bread that's part of the Passover meal? It's, it's your body? Well, like the disciples, let's ponder that thought in just a moment because we need to understand that. The passage continues. He took the cup, gave thanks over the cup, gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it. They would all thus partake of some of the unleavened bread. They would all thus partake of some of the drink. And he would go on to say, for this is my blood, the blood of a new testament or a new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth. I will not participate of this again, of the fruit of this vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When you read through these words slowly, I believe you get the impression that Christ isn't just concerned about the now, the moment. He's looking ahead. He's looking as only he can into an eternal perspective. And we need to be reminded of that eternal perspective, don't we? We get so easily caught up in the moment, in the day, in the to-do list, and what I've got to do, and it's almost time to go do this. I mean, we, we, we find ourselves in that very easily. Let's let the communion give us a sight off into eternity to remember there is an eternity that awaits us. And when they had sung a hymn, which was also tradition for the Passover, to sing a hymn, the family together would sing. There were hymns. You've got to realize by the time Christ shares this Passover with his disciples, the Passover itself had been in existence for some 1,400 years. And the singing of songs, as we often do at Easter and at Christmas, was also a part of the Passover. And they left. They go to the Mount of Olives where Christ will pray, where the disciples will faint. It's been a long day. They've traveled much. And the cool evening air 
kind of lulled them to sleep. But Christ, knowing what's ahead, there kneels and prays with great fervency, understanding what's before him. So let's talk about these elements just very briefly. The bread, as it's translated for us, is really unleavened bread. Unleavened bread means it has no yeast in it. In texture, it will look and, and sort of have the feel of a flat bread or maybe even a cracker, somewhere in those, those mindsets. It's not a loaf of bread. It's not a portion of bread that, that's taken off of something else. You know, we have lots of varieties of bread. This is, this is an unleavened bread that has no yeast in it because yeast always indicated sin. That's an ancient biblical teaching. So you take the sin out of the, the, of the material to make the bread, which means it's flat. It doesn't rise, of course. But that bread also is pierced. When you cook this kind of bread, you have to sort of take a, a needle and stick some holes in it. Otherwise, it burns as it sticks to the, to the heating surface. Reminding us that Christ said of, in prophecy of Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. That bread was also indicating of stripes and bruises. When you see it, you see those brown segments on it. Reminding us of Isaiah's prophecy. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, the punishment, was cast on him. He took it. And therefore, with his stripes, we are healed. Healed because we were sick. Brought into a state of health because we were decrepit. Our wretchedness permeated the entirety of our body. And that wretchedness was also revealed in the death of our very souls before Christ comes. We are healed. So when we think of Christ there on the cross, images again, we've seen dozens and hundreds are available, no doubt. This is my body, Jesus said of the bread bruised, beaten, whipped against that pole, pierced through his hands and feet, suspended between heaven and earth to be the only go-between for God and man. The only mediator, the scripture will say. Only him. Personally, I would not want to experience any one of those four. Not to mention the thirst, the dehydration, the shock that his body went through. I would not want to experience one of them. He experienced all of them in a matter of hours. If you want to take this topic and run some depth on it, let me point you to a couple of sources here. In April 1986, the American um, Medical Association published in their journal an article, have the title page, on the physical death of Jesus Christ, where medical doctors looked at the reality of what a crucifixion entailed and went in great depth. A journal written for doctors even included several diagrams to display, to try to explain what a crucifixion was. After all, this is Western culture. We don't have that reference point. And they took great detail in elaborating upon what the death on the cross has meant. That became the first of many, even experiments, 
There have been scientific experiments suspending people, not nailing them, but suspending people from a cross to say, how does the body react to this activity? What does it do to your breathing, to your heart rate, to your blood pressure? What does it do to your digestive system? I mean, they've, they've done lots of things. So much more is known now from that. And a couple of good books you might want to be interested in are here. The Execution of Jesus the Christ, written by a neurosurgeon, published in 2017. This would be a book I'd recommend for anyone to read. It's not full of lots of medical jargon. I read some good portions of it again this week. It elaborates, and he does a great job of setting the stage for the crucifixion. He talks about historical and geographical and religious and political issues that led up to Christ and his crucifixion, and then does a tremendous job going through the physical details of a body sent through what all Christ went through. Another book came out in 2019, The Crucifixion of Jesus, also authored by a medical doctor. It takes that same path. And when you read even portions of this, you will come away saying there is... It's unbelievable in my mind how much suffering and pain Christ went through. Indeed, his body was broken. Not a bone of it was broken, but his body shredded, going through such trauma we can't imagine. And even to hear a medical doctor put it into words still causes our, our brains to just put it off into can't imagine territory. So there are some great resources to learn more about this. What about the cup? Jesus would say, I will use this to demonstrate my blood. An image that I think the disciples would have referenced in their own minds because as Jews, they knew the Passover story, that there was blood involved. You see, God had established long, long ago that even one sin requires a payment of blood. Is God bloodthirsty? No. The illustration is for us to try to get our minds wrapped around the intensity of sin. See, even back in the garden, when the initial rebellion of God, or to God occurred by Adam and Eve, God took an innocent lamb and that innocent lamb died that they might have a covering for their sin. And as we read the laws of the old covenant, indeed there was sacrifice. There was blood. Blood that was in some cases spread here at the Passover. The instruction was to take the blood, sprinkle it, or, or place it upon the headpost and the sides of the door. And on that night of judgment to the land of Egypt, as the death angel came, they would be passed over because the blood had been applied. What a great image. Can you see how God is trying to get people to look forward? I think the disciples might have had some reference to the drink being the blood. That blood of the lamb, innocent. The blood that was shed. The blood that is redeeming. The blood that is cleansing. The blood that is life-giving. The blood that is all-sufficient. All-sufficient before a righteous and holy God. And what do we have to do? Simply claim that Christ, his sacrifice, his blood, washes away our sin. 
The sufficiency is already there. We just have to claim it and make the Christ our own. In 1 Corinthians, I mentioned five passages. Each of the Gospels covers something about the communion, the Lord's Supper, the Passover. Many years later, the Apostle Paul will write a passage recorded for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I don't have this up here, so listen to these words from verse 23. Paul would say, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner, he also took the cup. And after he had drank, after he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye. As often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. We too are being given this, this ordinance of communion with an intent to say, look forward. Look forward, because there is a day when the Lord shall come. So therefore, he says, Eat this bread, drink this cup of the Lord, but don't do it unworthily. Don't do it without examining yourself, is the intent. Anyone who does that shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. It's as if you cast it aside. What does it mean to accept it unworthily? It means we still harbor our sins. It means we still have some expression, some action, some word, some deed that has offended God and may have well offended others. We need to come to this place prepared, preparing ourselves to receive these elements. So the scripture says, let a man examine himself. And let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. The idea is be prepared, prepared spiritually. For anyone, for he that eats and drinks unworthily shall eat and drink condemnation upon himself. Scripture is very plain in reminding us this is not something to be taken lightly. It's not something to be, well, let's hurt and get this over with and find the rest of our day's activities. It should be taken seriously. End of that verse says, not discerning the Lord's body, not appreciating the value not grasping in some way the reality of Christ on a cross. Why? Because of you, because of me. So we're given an admonition from Scripture to make sure that we are properly prepared and properly exercising this with our mindset. So with those things in mind, I'd like to invite you to take of that little package you've got. Now, you have to be careful. If this is new to you, be careful. The wafer is on top, so be careful to peel back the top layer. We need to have a class in this, don't we? Peel back that top layer carefully. JT and the musicians will work their way up eventually. Now, I'll let you get back to my to my slides, if you will. 
Everybody safe and satisfied now? You have, your, you have an wafer? Why does this wafer taste worse than cardboard? Because <laughs> the big part of it is it's unleavened. It's basically flour and water. A little bit bitter to our taste. Not very appealing. Remember when Christ said, this is my body? He went through the bitterness for us. He suffered so we wouldn't have to. There is nothing appealing about what he did from a human perspective. But it is all satisfactory before the Lord himself. He did this. This is my body, he would say. And here we are, these many years later, many generations later, still remembering that he has done this for us. He broke it. And as it was given, he also blessed it. So let's pray to bless this peace. Father, today we come remembering your great provision of Christ, our Savior, that it might uh, satisfy the holiness and righteousness that otherwise we have no claim to. And I pray, Father, that you will bless our receiving of this bit of bread as we remember the Lord's body and how it was beaten and bruised and suffered so much for us. And may we receive this with your blessings. In Christ's name, amen. Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now the next step, be equally as careful if you haven't already and remove that other layer. And we will find there a bit of juice. Such a common element in that culture Basically, grape juice. And in our receiving of it, we do so with just a portion. As the disciples receive just a portion. To be reminded that this is representing the blood of Christ. Which was given freely for our sins. So we receive it for that purpose. In the same manner, he also took the cup... And when he had supped, he also reminded them, in this New Testament is my blood, this new covenant that we receive through Christ. So we pray. Father, thank you for the blood of Christ. We sing of it often. We preach of it often. Help us to never lose the importance of it in all that we do. I pray that we will receive this worthily, receive it reminded that this is done in remembrance of you who willingly gave your life for us, not only to live in this world, but to live eternally. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray, amen. And so we receive the cup. As we do this, such an easy action, we need to always remember, this do ye as often as you drink, every time. You know, there are some denominations who, like us, will, or many churches who will, like us, 
receive the communion four or five times a year. We sort of strategically plan it out. There are others who will receive the communion every Sunday. Maybe you know of, no, of those types of churches. It doesn't matter the number of times. The scriptures are silent on that. No matter how often we're reminded that whenever we drink it, we do it in remembrance of him. Whenever we receive the bread, we do it in remembrance of him. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death, his death, until he comes. Here we are in this time. Let us be diligent to do that. The scripture tells us that they ended the evening, they sang. And so I invite you to stand and we will end our service this morning, similarly with a song that reflects on the blood of Christ.